was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. My name is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. Today, we have with us Encore Monthly editor Robert Viagas, created specifically as the premier lifestyle magazine for theater lovers nationwide. Encore Monthly will connect readers to the stage and to each other, with features covering what happens on stage and in the wings, as well as all the places theater fans come together, in the aisles at intermission, in living rooms and dorm rooms, and on laptops and cell phones across the country, and what fans enjoy when not sitting in their theater seats. Robert Viagas is also the author of many popular books about the theater, including I'm the Greatest Star, The Alchemy of Theater, At This Theater with Louis Botto, all the Playbill yearbooks, and books about the making of A Chorus Line and The Fantastics. Robert is also the founder of Playbill Online, Playbill Radio, Playbill Books, and Playbill Travel, a longtime Tony Awards nominator, editor of the Tony's Playbill, and host of the Tony's webcast. He is also a popular theater lecturer and the topics of his talks include the Ten Secrets of Broadway, the Haunted Theaters of Broadway, inside the t- and Inside the Tony Awards with the Tony Awards Insider. His upcoming books include A History of the Audience and Ghost Stories. So, without further ado, the Broadway expert, Robert Viagas. So, I want to start by asking you how you first got interested in theater. Well, um... Let me see. When I was uh, I was a kid, I, I started getting interested in theater very much when I was a kid. Um, and it was kind of a golden age. They were they had. Um, oh, Lord, they had uh, Peter Pan and Cinderella was on television and then came out and then The Sound of Music came out. I mean, that was a time when um, musicals were very much more a part of the uh, general culture than they are now. And j- as a kid, I my father was a musician and. Uh, and my brother, I have one brother who was a had his own band. Another brother who went to Juilliard. I guess in a way, I was the least musically inclined of the family. But I st- I loved music, and you know something the the other the and of course it was six. This was in the sixties. It was a golden age of popular music. Also, I really didn't like any of the popular music that was out there at the time. I've since then come to appreciate Beatles and you know a lot of the other bands of that time. But um, I love the show music, and the, the music is really what pulled me in. And um, uh, I don't know. Do you, have you ever seen that uh, that that um, Mary Martin Peter Pan? I mean, it's incredibly low attack by today's standards. But um, our television was so bad, <laughs> black and white television. You couldn't see the ropes that were that were holding her up. So I was a little little kid, and it looked like she was actually flying. And um, uh, if, if you in the flying scene from Peter Pan, if you remember, the um, Peter Pan flies out the window, and Wendy and uh, and uh, John fly out the window, and Michael is the last one, the little kid in the feety pajamas is the last one. I had feety pajamas at that time, oh. so I was totally with him. Um, 
And uh, he's about to fly out and a maid comes in and she says to him, um, where are you going? And he says, we're flying to Neverland. And he like flies out the window. And, uh, and I have to tell you something, Charles, I went with him and that was kind of the beginning for me. Um, but now I'm, I'm, uh, I'm six foot four. I, and I, 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 you would have thought that I would have become a football player. And of point of fact, when I was in high school, I was endlessly harassed by Mr. Walpole, the football coach, because I was not on the team and our team did terribly. And uh, he actually went on the loudspeaker one day to humiliate me for not being on the team. But I didn't want to be on the football team. I actually, I, I finally broke down and I joined the football team briefly, but uh, I kept referring to the practices as rehearsals. So that was kind of a, that was kind of a tip that I was not never going to be a football player. Um, I loved being in the musicals and our high school, we had a great musical theater program. Um, I was in Guys and Dolls. I was in My Fair Lady. I was in Sweet Charity. We did some, some very adventurous shows for high school. We did Sweet Charity. I was Vittorio Vidal. We did uh, Promises, Promises, which has infidelity, marital infidelity in it. And I was Chuck Baxter in that. And then we did Bye Bye Birdie. I, th I think, I think uh, Promises, Promises pushed it a little too far. But I had a great time being in the musicals and I had no desire to be uh, on any of the, the sports teams. So yeah. that's kind of uh, that's kind of how I got uh, drawn into it. Yeah. So you do a huge number of different things in the theater now. But what was your original aspiration? Was it to be an actor? Or... I'm going to tell you something, Charles, as much fun as I had being in those shows. I never really wanted to be an actor. I really always wanted to be a theater journalist. Oh. I don't know if any, I think a lot of people back into it. I'm one of the few people who, when I was a kid, when everybody else wanted to be movie stars and football players, I really wanted to be a journalist. And I had a, I even had a, a fantasy. Um, I had a newspaper route. I used to deliver Penny Saver and Newsday on Long Island where I grew up. And, um, I couldn't understand why they didn't put theater on the front page every day. They put politics, they put business, they put sports. Why didn't they put theater on the front page every day? So I had this idea, someday I will create a theater newspaper and it will have theater on the front page every single day. And you know something? I just kind of carried that around and I thought, this is just one dream that will never come true. Then the internet popped up. And uh, the Playbill approached me. They wanted me to create a website for them. And I said, why don't we, why don't we make it like a theater news website? And we could put theater on the front page every day. <laughs> and uh, and I, so I got to actually have that dream. Yeah. So when you were growing up, were you able to see a lot of Broadway shows or? I know. Oh. I grew up in a in a uh, working class family. My parents would go in to see shows. Took me to see the Fantastics at Westbury Music Fair, which is a in the Round Theater on Long Island. Um, and I was there's a, there's a line in the show. Um, that one of the running gags in the show is that the old actor who's supposed to be a great Shakespearean actor he keeps quoting lines from Shakespeare incorrectly, or he confuses one with the other. So there's one line in the show where he says. Uh, friends, Romans, countrymen, screw your courage to the sticking place, which is quotes from two different plays kind of stuck together. Anyway, the audience roared at when he said the word screw. And um, 
I asked my parents, I said, why did they laugh at that? I was like 10 at the time. I said, why did, why did they, everybody laugh at that? And my parents said, well, we'll tell you when we're older. Because they thought it was like a dirty reference, oh. which it isn't. The joke is that he screwed, he screwed up the Shakespeare quote. But I remember thinking to myself, there's secret, interesting things in theater that I uh, someday I'd like to learn about these secret, interesting things that are like too forbidden for my parents even to tell me what they meant. And as you know, I later on wrote a whole book about the fantastic. Um, so my interest in the fantastics turned later turned into a whole book about the fantastics. Um, so, uh, uh, but I also had another thing. As I'm six foot four, as I mentioned, I'm really big. I look like I should have been a football player. Um, I had a friend who um, used to review for our local newspaper, the Franklin Square Bulletin, which is a tiny little weekly newspaper. Um, and um, uh, he he didn't have a big social life. And going into Times Square in those days, it was it was dangerous. I mean, you'd be yeah. I was once solicited right in front of the Brooks Atkinson Theater oh. with a date. Um, it was it was not. And people have there were purse snatchings and knifings. It was a dangerous, dangerous time. So my friend who didn't have a girlfriend at the time or, or at any significant other, I think he just looked around and just picked the biggest friend he had. And oh. I used to, I used to go, I was his plus one because when you get to review shows, you get two tickets, you get one for you and you get what they call a plus one. And so I was his plus one for a while. And I think I, he brought me along to protect him. Um, the problem is, though, his social life improved. He went off to college and suddenly I lost my free tickets to shows. The only way I knew to get free tickets, Charles, was to write theater reviews. So I took over his column in the Franklin Square Bulletin writing theater reviews so I could see shows for free. And um, and it was an addiction that that pretty much uh, I never got over. Yeah. So can you remember any sort of favorite shows or experiences seeing them from that time? Yes, I do. Um, my, uh, I had gotten a, a subscription to the uh, New York Shakespeare Festival the pub at the Public Theater. Um, and it was, a, it was a whole season. It, because we, I was a student, it was very inexpensive. They didn't let me in to review it. I had to actually pay cash money for this. Uh, but, you know, they had done so many interesting things. They had had hair. They had all these interesting shows. Uh, so um, we bought uh, a, subs a subscription. And I have to tell you, the first couple of shows of the season were so bad. Um, and, you know, it was a, it was a five show subscription. And the first couple of shows were so bad. I, and I used to have to schlep in from Long Island into New York and take buses and trains and subways. And it was it was it was a lot of work to do. And so the last show of the season, um, I said, the shows have been so bad this season. I'm not going to go to this last show. Um, because it doesn't sound very, it sounds like a, it sounds like a generic musical. It was called A Chorus Line. Uh, and I thought, how good can it be? So I decided not to go to see it. And, uh, but my friend said, no, 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 no. I, I'm hearing some good things about it. You should, you should really go to see it. I said, I don't want to go all the way in the city to have another horrible experience. He said, no, 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 no. I, I think you should go. Um, so I went and, um, I knew there was a, I knew there was something special was happening. When I got to the public theater downtown, there was a line of people waiting for seat cancellations because it was sold out. Um, and it was all celebrities. Celebrities were on the, the waiting line. So I thought, 
maybe it's a good idea that I came to see this show. So I went in and of course it was a chorus line and it was incredible. And um, it remains my favorite show. And, and by the way, I didn't write books about every show that I went to see, but I did write a book about a chorus line with, yeah. two, with the original cast, which was an incredible experience. And that's a long answer to your question. Chorus line hit me hard, hit me young. And, uh, and I, just, I just so dug that show. Yeah, um, going back for a second to your wanting to be a theater journalist, were there any sort of people that you were reading at this time, like older critics or? Yes, oh yes, yes, yes. Um, there, was, there were two writers that were very, very influential on me, although they're, they're older. I mean, I've always been interested in history, but I think part of it was um, there were two guys, H.L. Uh, Mencken, who was a social critic, and he occasionally wrote about theater, and his partner was George G. Nathan. And the two of them published a magazine together, and uh, the, the reviews were so witty and so intelligent and so sharp. I, they were long gone by the time I, I discovered them. I actually started collecting their old magazines that had been printed in the teens and the, and the 20s. And they were like falling, I used to have to go to old bookshops. They used to have bookshops, by the way. Um, and the magazines were like crumbling, but they, I just treasured the, the, them. And I just kept thinking to myself, you know, someday I would like to run a magazine like H.L. Mencken and, and, uh, and uh, George G. Nathan. By the way, the, the, the award that they give each year for a theater criticism is the George G. Nathan Award because he was, oh. he was such an ultimate uh, theater critic. And, and uh, I have to say, whenever I'm feeling blocked, which doesn't happen a lot. I, I'm very prolific. I write a lot. All I do is pull out, I have a whole collection now of, of Mencken's work. I just pull out and I read a couple of his essays and then boom, it just breaks. And then I'm able to just jump in. And he was, the, was so lively and so smart and so knowledgeable. Um, and he used the English language in such a way. It's wonderful to read his reviews out loud because they're so... The writing is so musical and, and I aspire to that. Yeah. So I do want to ask at what point you eventually did move into Manhattan and did you always know that that was something you wanted to do? Or? Well, actually, I, I only actually lived in Manhattan twice, for, both for very short periods of time. I've lived okay. around, I've lived in Westchester and Connecticut and, and Long Island. Actually, I'm, I'm still sheltering in place on Long Island right now. Um, uh, but I, I spend a tremendous amount of time in New York City. Matter of fact, there was an event on Friday that they were, they did a, a Broadway Next, the organization that, uh, uh, tr you know, tries to remind the public that theater is going to come back bigger and better than ever. Uh, every once in a while, they have a concert in Times Square, and they had one, and it was Brian Stokes Mitchell and Cheetah Rivera and Matthew Broderick and, and, um, uh, an, an incredible lineup of, of wonderful uh, talent. Um, and it was so exciting to be back in Times Square again, because, you know, now I've had a chance to, to be in Times Square for, you know, like a, um, almost a half a century. Um, and uh, no, I'm sorry, a half a century. Um, um, and just to see how much it's changed over all those years. You know, the 42nd Street, which is now so lively, there was a period of time when you went on 42nd Street, it was like visiting the Acropolis in in, uh, in Athens, in Greece. You know, it was the ruins of something that had once been great. And it was kind of sad almost to walk down 42nd Street and know that this at one time had been the heart 
of the theater world. And now it's just drug dealers and pornography. And, you know, it was, it, and it is, I know some people complain that it's now like too cleaned up, but uh, it's so nice to see all those theaters actually having live shows in them. Um, I, that's one thing. I thought of that the other day when I was walking through 42nd Street on my way to Times Square. Um, you know, it's something that I wished for. And, you know, as you know, that was my I want song early on. I want the uh, I want 42nd Street to come back. I want there to be the year I started Playbill.com. They gave best score and best book to um, Sunset Boulevard without you know why they gave it to them? Because there were no wow. other musicals that opened that season they were eligible. There was one musical that had an original book and an original score. And I remember just saying, I, I really wanted a time to come when all the theaters are booked and when uh, you know there's a line of shows waiting to come in like they did in the old days. And and that came about. And I think it's I think it's because of me. I think it's because I personally <laughs> wanted that to happen. Um, but you know, I think also I mean that's silly, but um, realistically, I think starting the first theater website and just getting information out. There was no information. It was really hard to get information about the theater. Yeah. Uh, the New York Times, which was, you know, the newspaper record, they had a column day one day a week, Friday, they would put news in uh, about the theater. You could not really get news anyplace else. I think a lot of people thought that Broadway no longer existed. And I think one thing that was great about starting that website, starting my daily theater newspaper, is to remind people that theater is not something that happened long ago and far away, that it was happening now. And there's exciting things and exciting personalities and interesting uh, stories being told and wonderful music being written. And I think the fact that, that people can now access that, I think that's part of the reason why, um, you know, we went from, uh, we went from almost, there was a period of time where the theaters would stand empty for two or three seasons. Yeah. They used to have, uh, what they used to do is the Schubert's did this. They would on their marquee after like a year or so, they put up a marquee that said, see a show for the fun of it, which was, uh, which was good, but that's because they had no show in that theater. I mean, think about a theater not being, I mean, now it's, everything's been closed for a year, but it's not because there were no shows in those days. It was because there were no shows. And we haven't, the last time those went up were 2003. I researched this. That was the last time they had a see a show for the fun of it. Now the theaters are all booked. And I think part of it is because now people can get information. You know, the, in the old days, if the show was a big hit, they would have a line of people the next morning after the reviews came out to buy tickets. You don't see that anymore because you don't have to get online anymore. You can buy it on the internet. Um, but that was a sign that a show was a big hit. But it, that was a pain. People would have to come out and stand online in the cold and for hours to get tickets. And um, that now they don't have to do that. And so I think the web has, if you think about it, the theater is the most live and in-person thing, um, the, the entertainment form. You're so close to the actors, you're responding to them, they're responding to you. And yet it has been saved by this completely virtual um, information source. Yeah. But I, I saw that and 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 I I thought to myself for the rest of my career, anytime there is a new uh, technological advance like the internet, I'm going to put theater into it. 
when Facebook started, we put theater into that. When uh, uh, Twitter started, we put theater right into that. Uh, and here I am on Zoom. Um, that is, oh, that is, and you know something, one thing I've realized, people always think like Oklahoma, that things have gone about as far as they can go. People always think whatever we have now, this is as far as it's going to get and it's gonna stay this way forever. But you know something, Charles? It's not. There's gonna be something that we can't even, did we know anything about Zoom a year ago? No, no. No, and here we are. I mean, it's all happening on Zoom. I'm telling you, there'll be things that will happen in 2023 and things that will happen in 2025. There will be technological advances. Someday there will be something on your glasses and you'll put it on and you'll be able to communicate you know, through through your your mind, you'll just think it, and, and you'll be able to connect. It sounds like science fiction, but you know something? What we're doing right now was science fiction not that long ago. Yeah. So there's, and my goal has been throughout my career, and now working on Encore Monthly magazine. Our goal is, even though it's a print magazine, I know it's retro, but that's just our mothership. Um. That as these technological advances happen, we are ready and we're going to jump in and make sure that whatever happens technologically, communications wise, theater will be in it. Yeah, that's that's great. Uh, you know, that's the whole thing, because, you know, it's amazing. There's, there's so many art forms that have kind of entertainment art forms that have died as a result of technological advances. Where's burlesque? Where's operetta? You know, where's where's uh, uh, vaudeville? A lot of these things that were huge. I mean, some of them I'm glad they're gone, like minstrel shows. We, we could we definitely could live without the minstrel shows. But there was a period of time where minstrel shows were the main form of theater in this country. Yikes. Um, and and we're lucky that theater is not that live theater, especially musicals, but also plays, uh, though that has not died because. They, they meet a need in the audience. I'm all about the audience. I have a theory. I believe that theater does not happen on the stage. I believe that theater happens in the audience. I believe it happens inside the hearts of the people who are watching the show. And as theater has served the audience, and that is why it has survived. And I mean, look at the ticket prices. The more they, this is one of the things that are completely counterintuitive. The more they raise the ticket prices, the more people buy tickets. It's crazy. Um, obviously, it's meeting a need, a very atavistic need in the in in the audience. Uh, seeing a live show, seeing a live actors creating worlds, creating dreams right in front of their eyes. That is just something that is always going to satisfy something in the human soul yeah. uh, and and it's a global thing it's not just one country it's it's around the world the more you look at it I mean we mainly hear about theater in English-speaking countries because that you know it's easy to translate them I mean it's easy to transfer them um, but the theater is happening all around the world in many different languages I was at a press conference yesterday Lin-Manuel was promoting in the Heights and he was saying um, you know, you'd think that that the, with the rhymes and all and the references and things that Hamilton would not travel well. He says it's been translated and done all over the world and, and in the Heights as well. Um, there's just something really, really satisfying about it. And I'm happy to be uh, uh, somebody who is getting it out there and is talking about it and is writing about it. Yeah. So I do want to ask how Playbill Online or Playbill.com started. 
for you? Well, um, I was working for a company called uh, Prodigy, which was an online service. Believe it or not, before, when the internet started, there was no way to travel around the internet. They had not invented browsers. So imagine trying to find something on the internet without a browser. That was the world that I kind of came into. Uh, they created these online services like Prodigy and CompuServe and America Online. There were a bunch of them where you could go to go to them online and you could find stuff that you needed. Anyway, I worked for them for a while as what they called a producer. A producer, which is an inflated title, really all it meant was uh, I would help magazines um, get onto the get onto the online world. Um, because a lot of times the president of the company would read about this thing called the internet and would call in the vice president and say, get us on the internet. And the vice president would come to us going, I don't know what this is. I don't know what to do. So uh, my job was to take them by the hand and to reconceive their, their publications for the web, make them interactive, make them something that changed every day, not once a month. Um, all these things that, that they didn't understand. Anyway, one day they came in with, uh, they, the manager said, I got somebody, I got a magazine you're going to like. I know you're going to like it. It's Playbill. And so I spoke to Playbill and I said, well, what would you like to do? And they said, um, well, here's our plan. We would like to take all of our who's who sections, those little things in the back where they say that, and put them on, uh, on Prodigy. And as the shows, as we add more, eventually we'll become the encyclopedia of theater on the internet. And I said, well, that sounds great. And uh, are you hoping to make money from this? And they said, yes. I, they said, like our magazines, we're, we're ad supported. That's our, that's our business model. Yeah. So I said, uh, okay, um, how many ads do you see in the encyclopedia versus how many ads do you see in the newspaper? In those days, newspapers had a lot of ads. Yeah. Um, they said, well, oh, well, I, obviously there's none in the encyclopedia, that's right. I said, what you want to be is the newspaper of theater, because don't forget, I had my secret dream to start the theater. I said, what you want to be is the theater, the, the newspaper of theater on the internet. And so uh, they actually hired me away from Prodigy to come over and get that started, because I had a newspaper background. I had worked for, um, I'd worked for Newsday, the daily newspaper, uh, and I had, I'd written freelance for a lot of different magazines. So I had a journalistic background. Uh, and so uh, that's, that is basically how it got started. And then we just kept we just kept saying, like, what would drive theater people completely crazy? In those days, there was a drug called crack that was kind of a, a very, uh, it's like oxy now. And uh, I said, what we really want to do is, is make crack for theater lovers. Let's, let's put in a place where they can, where they can buy theater merchandise. Let's add in a, so they can get discount tickets. Uh, let's put in, and we just, we just sit there and go like, what would make this completely irresistible to, uh, to theater lovers? And, uh, and, and that's uh, that's basically how it came about. It, gra it grew over a couple of years, and we added Playbill Travel and a number of different things, Playbuilder, um, et cetera. We added a number of things. I, this may just completely be a coincidence, but I noticed that since I retired, they haven't added any of these new things. So that's all I'm going to say. Yeah. So I do want to ask, um, as you said, you were one of the first places to sort of put out this theater news. So where did you get this news? What was your source? Well, fortunately, because I'd been reviewing since I was, you know, a teenager, I started my first theater column when I was 17, when my friend went off to college. Um, I knew all the press agents on Broadway. So I sent them all uh, information, emails, 
um, which was kind of new then. Not everybody had email. Um, I sent them all emails saying, look, I'm going over to Playbill. I'm going to start up this, uh, this news website. I'd like you to please send me press releases and I'm going to be asking for interviews. But I had been dealing, you know, I'd been dealing with them for a pretty long time. They all knew me. Uh, I do remember this and I'll, I'll never forget this. I told them that I was going over to Playbill and the morning that I arrived at Playbill, they didn't even have a mailbox for me yet. At the front desk was the season preview put out by Bono Brian Brown, the press agent. Oh. It was waiting for me the first day I, I went in there. And so that, that to me, that said the level of professionalism that I was dealing with. But so I immediately hooked into all the same sources of, of information that, uh, that you know, all the big newspapers had. My difference was I actually used it. A lot of them they get the press release and go in the circular file. I used yeah. those things and and um, I tried to reconceive what was theater news. In the old days, when the whole cast was assembled and they knew what theater they were in, and when the tickets were going on sale, et cetera, et cetera, they would um, put out one press release. I said, let's break that down. When they announce the show, that's a story. When they hire the star, that's a story. When they open the box office, that's a story. When they release the cast album, that's a story. And suddenly at the beginning, people said, how many stories are you gonna have? You know, like you're gonna have like one or two stories a week. I said, I, I bet we'll have more than that. There was a period of time where uh, my staff was moving 40 stories a day. Wow. Um, there was plenty of theater news. You treat it like it's serious. You treat it like it's really news. You'd have plenty of news. Yeah. Um, so uh, that's kind of how it, it grew. I kind of uh, used my connections. And then and um, there was a period of time where people preferred to be in, to announce things in the New York Times. The problem is they would have they'd know what they wanted to do on Monday. The Times wouldn't put it until Friday or even the following Friday. Whereas if they yeah. sent it to me, it would be online within an hour bit by bit. They. Uh, they started sending things to me at the same time. And then the Times stopped using their Friday column because they knew they were getting beat, beaten. They knew they were getting beaten. Um, and then, uh, you know, the sincerest form of flattery is imitation. So suddenly there were some other theater websites started popping up, Theater Mania and a couple of others. Uh, and and so I knew I was on the right track, that, that I actually had competition then in the online world. I knew that this is where theater news and theater information was moving. Yeah. And I do want to ask how you would sort of deal with that competition to make Playbill like the best cider, the one that- Well, I mean, I don't wanna, I've been touting Playbill quite a lot. I mean, I'm not there anymore. Now I'm um, Encore Monthly, which has a, it doesn't have as much of a, um, a news bent to it. They're doing the news thing. I don't necessarily wanna promote them too much, but um, you know, we try, here's the thing that we did differently. A lot of them, just post press releases. What happens is the the press agent will send you a release, and it's worded in a you know in a uh, very promotional way. And a lot of the competition, we just take the press release and put it online. I never allowed that to happen. We were a news service, and if they said something controversial, we would check it. Um, um, if there was news that was you know somebody got hurt in in a in a show, and and you know if the star got hurt press agent didn't necessarily want to put that information out, but it was news. And so we would check it. That's another thing. A lot of people rush into print with rumors. I always had the staff um, check out the rumors. Were the rumors true? Were they false? Or were they just rumors? 
And um, and I I always used to just post things that we were able to confirm because of my journalism background, that's the way they treated it at newspapers in those days. Some papers still do that. Um, I always double check things. I, I ran it like a real news service, like the Associated Press. After a while, I started to think of it more as like the Associated Press. Um, and as far as updating stories, I mean, there's a lot of technical things involved, but uh, I tried to treat it like a serious news organization. And um, I think uh, I think it still kind of has that cachet, um, but that was that was how we set ourselves apart. We were a real news organization. We didn't we weren't just a press release mill. And how did you start developing these sort of columns that would become famous, like Peter Felicia's and Ken Mandelbaum? And well, um, there was a, a magazine called Theater Week, and and they were columnists for it, and I was very jealous of, of them um, because they had these wonderful writers. Um, but the magazine founder, they, they stopped publishing the magazine and, um, and I saw an opportunity to swoop in and to get two of my favorite writers. And so I grabbed Mandelbaum and Felicia and, uh, and other, other writers that were, they had some other really good writers. As a matter of fact, Peter Felicia right now writes, as you know, <laughs> I almost told you, um, Peter Felicia writes for me now in, on Encore. Um, I've been trying to reach Mandelbaum. Uh, I know that he has kind of become a hermit and he's suddenly stopped writing. And, uh, uh, but I would love to bring him back into print. As a matter of fact, I have a couple of really good story ideas for him that are tailored to his specialty that, uh, that I would love to put in the magazine. So if, if you know him, if you, uh, I've been trying to reach him through all my contacts and I have a lot of contacts and uh, generally what comes back is a little shake of the head. He's, he's not interested. Um, but I would love to, uh, to uh, publish him again uh, if he's interested in doing it. Um, but I, I, you know, one thing that's great about people said, you know, you're totally crazy to start this magazine in the middle of this COVID thing which was, we're not right. Uh, as it turns out, yeah. there's a lot of these, the best writers, they have, they're not able to write. Yeah. Mighty engines are idling out there. And so I was able to call up my dream team of writers mm -hmm. and say, would you like to be in a magazine? We're actually going to publish. We're actually, Playbill might not be able to put out their programs until the, the theaters light up again, but I can publish my magazine. We're going to start in January. And so I was able to get, Basically, every writer that I dreamed about working with, who I know is a good writer, I know is accurate, careful, um, and who is good to work with. They meet deadlines. Um, I don't know if you know who Joe Marcus is. She's one of the big photographers. Yeah. And she does the uh, production photos for basically 70% of the shows. All right. Now, there's no work for her right now. I hired her as my photo editor. So we have not only is she able to get great photos, we have access to her incredible, um, you know, back, uh, uh, you know, her, her, her whole archive of photos. Uh, so if you notice, the photos in the magazine have been pretty darn nice. Okay. And I really wanted the magazine to be a showcase for photography because uh, we use very high quality paper. The, uh, the stock, is, I made sure we use very high quality stock, which is able to reproduce very fine detail in the photograph. So we get really high resolution photographs. We reproduce them beautifully. Look because that. you know something, I have to say, this is very humbling for me as a writer. I've written, you know, I've, I have written 19 books about theater. 
And uh, like, for instance, uh, okay, like for instance, this book, this is my book about Broadway stars, Broadway musical stars. It's called I'm the Greatest Star. Uh, I only have one photo with each chapter. Each chapter is on a different star. So a lot of the mag a lot of the book looks like this. It's text. It's all my beautiful writing. I noticed that whenever people would pick up the, the book, they'd flip through until they'd hit a picture and they go, wow, this book is great. And I said, I didn't do the pictures. I did the text. Only the text is great. It happened so many times, Charles, that I decided that I, when I put out a magazine, I would never have a page that had only text. My magazine has a gorgeous picture on every page. That's the way I decided for just that reason, for all those people who flipped through my book looking for uh, pictures, I decided to put a picture on every page. So, uh, and, it's, and that's why I got Joan Marcus and we've been using fantastic photos and, uh, and I've been loving it. And everybody says, wow, your magazine is so great. I think what they're saying is, I mean, a lot, the writing, of course, I know that the writing is great because of the, the writers that I hired. I hire only like writers. I have Evelyn Chow who writes for the New York Times is also writing for me. Uh, I have gr a great staff of people. Cara Joy David, who's a wonderful oh. writer. Max Berry, who's in his 20s. Uh, he's a budding guy. He's going to be running the show in a couple of years, I'm sure. Right. Most of the mag most of the stories that I'm able to write are about general things, you know, about, um, um, you know, Peter Felicia wrote a story about places mentioned in shows that you can actually go to see. You can actually go to where Hamilton had his duel. That's in, it's a park. Um, if you go to, um, uh, there's, a, there's a town in Iowa that was where uh, Meredith Wilson grew up. Um, and they have, they are just, they're music manned to the max. They have the music man costumes and the music man, a billiard parlor and everything else. So there are places that you can actually go, like the Casa Rosada mentioned in, in Evita. That's a real place. It's their White House. Yeah. Um, uh, but th those things are not pegged to a particular show is what I'm trying to say. Once the theaters are open again, we'll be doing more things related to particular shows. But right now we're doing things that are of general interest to the theater world. So I do want to ask you if that's all right about some of the things that you sort of started at Playbill, which you were mentioning earlier, because mm -hmm. I think those things are great. And one sure. of them is, is Playbill Radio. So yeah. how did the idea for this sort of happen? Well, they were starting Sirius, um, Sirius XM. Well, what's now called Sirius XM. Sirius and XM used to be two separate things that were competing with each other. We um, uh, approached, Sirius actually approached us, approached Playbill. They wanted us to program their Broadway channel. And, um, uh, you know, they, they at the time, they, they didn't really have... Um, uh, Right now, all the record companies, they digitalize their music and they make it available to you in digital form. They didn't in those days. We actually had to rip CDs to get music to play on the station. And do you know whose collection of CDs was the original foundation of that channel? My collection of, of thousands of CDs. Um, they, we actually, it took us weeks and months to actually rip all those CDs so that we could have music to play. Um, but they approached us because what they wanted, wanted a mixture of music and of course, at the top of every hour, a news report. So we were, and we were the source of theater news. So they came to us 
And, uh, and we started doing that for them. And we would have news at the top of the hour. And, uh, I, and I would do interviews. I had actually three different interview shows. Um, and I would go to their studios up on, uh, what is it, 47th or 49th Street and 6th Avenue. It was right around the corner from Playbill. Um, and I would go up, to, right up in the elevator. And they had those incredible studios. And I brought in Jerry Herman. And I brought in all these incredible people um, to, to uh, be interviewed and to play music. Brian Stokes Mitchell came up. And, and you know, I tried to get some of the, the older people who I, I, you know, I was afraid that they wouldn't be around. Carol Channing, you know, I got these incredible people would come on the radio and I'd put them on the radio so people could hear them. Uh, and it was all part of my, uh, part of, you know, my plan to, uh, you know, let people know that theater is, is very much out there and is very much alive. Um, and then at a certain point, um, we decided to take it in-house. And so we actually created our own platform instead of, they wanted to have their own station that they programmed themselves. So we started our own online radio uh, thing. It lasted for six years. Uh, it eventually became uh, too expensive to run, unfortunately, but I had a lot of fun over that time. Um, Billy Crystal and, um, uh, I'm trying to remember, it was Billy Crystal came in with Mark Shaman, the composer. Oh. They were working on a show together at that time. And it was one of the funniest interviews I ever did. I was rolling the whole time. And it was just the three of us in a tiny little studio. Oh. Can you imagine? Um, these two comic geniuses and, uh, and little old me um, in, in this thing together. And, and uh, you know, I tried to interview them, but they just wanted to riff on each other and they just wanted to have fun with each other. Um, but um, that was, and that was what we did with the radio. It was, I had a great time doing the radio. I loved doing radio. And I, I do want to ask about um, other memorable interviews, either good ones or bad ones. I know there can be some bad ones. Hmm. Um, you know, some of the bad ones, I don't necessarily want to, yeah. uh, uh, let me put it, let me put it this way. There was one time there was a, a famous, um, uh, jazz. I found that jazz musicians actually are terrible interviews. Oh. Um, this was somebody who had a big jazz background who had also done a lot of Broadway and, uh, he had written an autobiography. And so I was interviewing him in connection with that. And every time I'd ask him a question, he'd say, it's all in the book. It's all in the book. Just, just read the book. You can find, I said, yes, yes, yes. But we're on radio show now. And so I'd like you to talk a little bit about it and, and maybe recount some of these stories, give people like a flavor of what the book is about. Now that's why I wrote the book. So I wouldn't have to talk about it. Um, so I would have to say that I'd, I'd have to class that as a bad interview. That was actually a terrible interview. Um, uh, one famous uh, leading lady came in and um, I, I don't know if she was having a nervous breakdown, but she started talking about how there are armed soldiers underneath Penn Station that are going to come out, who are going to come out and, uh, you know, take over the city. Um, and she said that she, there was a, this was right after 9-11. So there were a lot of soldiers in, in Penn Station and uh, with carbines and things. And so she said, do you see those soldiers in there? They're getting ready. They're going to take over. And so I didn't even use that interview because she sounded like a kook, quite honestly. I would have to say one of the greatest nights of my life. Uh, I had written a book about um, 
originally we were going to do a book about uh, for Playbill Books because I also started Playbill Books. We were going to do a book about how people do their jobs on Broadway. Um, and as I worked on it and interviewed people, I realized that people don't just do their jobs in isolation on Broadway. All jobs are in collaboration. And so I decided to do a book about jobs, but also about how they do their jobs in collaboration. And I just went to the people I consider to be the top people on Broadway. Uh, and I asked them how they did their jobs. And um, that's have it here. I have the paperback. Just came out in paperback. Um, it, we, we, I had, uh, for, for uh, director, I had Harold, Prince, musical director, Hal Prince. Um, for um, um, musical director, uh, for, uh, I'm sorry, producer director, I had Hal Prince. For musical director, I had Susan Stroman. For play director, I had George mm -hmm. Sewell. For playwright, I had Wendy Wasserstein and Edward Albee. Cheetah Rivera, Brian Stokes Mitchell, Robin Wagner, Cy Coleman was my composer. Um, it, I just had this, uh, William Ivy Long was my designer. Jerry Schoenfeld, head of the Schubert organization. Now he's turned into a theater. I don't know how that happened. Uh, Terrence McNally, et cetera. So I got all these incredible people to write this book, The Alchemy of Theater, the Playbook Books. Um, and after the book was published, um, we got contacted by the 92nd Street Y and they said, would you come down and do a, an event and talk about the book? And, and could you bring a couple of your, the people who wrote for the book? I thought they just wanted me, but no, they wanted. So we got, luckily I have everything at arm's reach here. Here's a photo of us at 92nd Street Y. Oh, this is wow. Kathleen Chalfont. This is uh, Stephen Flaherty. This is Terrence McNally. This is um, uh, Lynn Ahrens. This is Edward Albee. This is Hal Prince. And this is me, little old me. And this, I'd have to say the night we did these interviews about the book and about how these incredible people do collaboration, how they collaborate, how they create working with other talented people. This was one of the, I think this is one of the great interview nights of my life. Yeah. Um, Whenever I get stuck with something, I turn around and I just say, Hal, what would you do? How would I solve this problem? If you were, if you were running this, what would you do? So, so to answer, to, long answer to your question, that was some of my worst interviews and probably my best. Yeah. So I would love to ask more about some of your books next, which I own almost all of them and I love them. Yeah. Excellent. Good man. So what would you like to know? I'm working on two books now, by the way. Oh, really? Yes, yes, I am. Um, are you are you curious? Do you want to hear about them, or do you want to? Oh, okay. Can you? Um, they're both coming out from Applause Books. One is going to come out in twenty, uh, late twenty one or early twenty two, and the other one's going to come out at Halloween of twenty two. One of the things that I personally have taken on over the years is I collect ghost stories of haunted theaters. And my, these are not things that I dug out of books. When I was working on the Playbill Broadway yearbook, I used to ask every people on every show, have you had a ghostly experience? And you know what's really interesting, Charles? The theaters that, do ha that have had ghostly experiences, show after show after show, they always had a ghost story. But some of the theaters where they didn't have a ghost story, they never had a ghost story. 
I would ask show after show. Have any ghostly experiences? No, sorry. I can make one up if you want. I said, no, 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 no. I want, I want experiences that you think really happened. Um, it's almost as if, Charles, it's almost as if there actually are ghosts at some of the theaters and actually aren't at some of the other theaters. So anyway, finally applause books. I, I do this lecture called The Haunted Theaters of Broadway and they approached me and they said, we'd like you to write a book about this. So I'm actually working on that now. Um, and I'm also writing a book um, about the history of the audience, audiences. Because again, I, to me, the key thing here is not that there's people who like to put on silly costumes and jump around on the stage. The thing that interests me is that there's so many people who want to watch them do it. What do they get out of it? Why do, we, why do they love it? Why are we sitting here with your background looking at a stage? We're, like, we're all like the audience. People, what do people get out of being in an audience? Not, not just a play audience. What do they get out of being in, you know, in, a, in a sports audience? So what do they get out of being in a movie? The actors aren't even there. It's just, it's just shadows flashing on the screen. And yet people love to watch it. Why do people cozy up and watch uh, 14 hours of The Crown? You know, wh what, do they, wh what do they get out of just like, would they, would they stand outside their neighbor's window and look in and watch their lives? Maybe they would. Um, but they don't have to worry about getting arrested. They can stand at the window and watch people's lives without getting arrested. It's so interesting. Audiences are so interesting to me. So those are the two books that's going to be, by the way, that's gonna be my 21st and 22nd books. Wow. Oh, I can't wait to read both of those. I so can't wait to finish writing them. It's a little bit intimidating to be putting out a magazine and writing two books. Yeah. So I do want to ask about first your correspondence, yes. which we mentioned earlier. So yes. was this your idea or did they bring it to you? Or? With Byerkley and Tommy Walsh. Two of them were appointed by the cast um, oh. to be their spokespersons. No, um, uh, in, the, uh, in the 80s, I had an idea for a book. Um, I called it The Fourth Generation, and it was going to be about how musicals were created uh, in the 70s and 80s. And I had a key chapter on how Chorus Line was created because nowadays a lot of shows get workshopped, but in those days, that was really the first major show to go through the workshop process. So I had a chapter on that. And I took it to my agent, whose name is Mitch Douglas, who had been Tennessee Williams's agent. It was a crazy, incredible agent. Um, and he said, I, I don't know. He says, I could probably sell this, but you won't get much for it. It's, I don't think this is, this is a mass a mass interest book. It's a specialty interest book. I said, oh, well. yeah. now the chorus line people felt that they had been um, not gotten what they should have gotten considering their life stories are key to a chorus line. They felt they should have participated mm -hmm. a little bit more. So they got together. This is the original cast. They got together and um, they said, why don't we write a book of our own and tell our stories not in a shortened, fictionalized way, but to really tell our life stories and also to tell the story of, you know, the Chorus Line was how they got to Chorus Line. Let's tell a story about what happened to us, to us during the creation of a Chorus Line. And so Tommy and Bayork created a questionnaire. Um, we each step along the way and they passed them out to the 19 people who were on stage. Uh, it's actually, there are 17 people on stage, but then um, the uh, Zach and um, and his assistant are, are 18 and 19 because they do appear on stage. Um, so the result was they had a stack, stack of questionnaires 
I, I can't even fit my hands how big the stack was in this screen. And uh, the publisher um, took one look at it and they said, this is great, but we can't publish. This is like a phone book. They used to have phone books, by the way. Um, they were thick with very, very flimsy paper stock. So they wouldn't be even thicker. Anyway, um, the pub publisher said, we'd love to publish this, but you got to find a writer uh, to condense these and to turn them into a narrative rather than 19 questionnaires to turn it into a book. So they, Mitch was also their agent. So Mitch said, they said, where, who can we get to write this? And Mitch said, I know a guy who has a, wrote a chapter in a book about exactly this. And they sent them the chapter outline for my book. And Tommy and Bayork met with me and we hit it off immediately. We were just all on the same uh, page and they didn't have to teach me from the ground up what dancers do on Broadway. In those days, yeah. they called them gypsies. I mean, I know that's not politically correct anymore, but um, that's what they called them then. What their lives were like, um, you know, some of the prejudices against them in the industry. Dancers in those days were regarded as not the smartest of the of the dance of the people on Broadway, which was not correct. That was wrong. They were they were smart. They they're very focused on their art, but they're not dumb people at, by any means. Um, and they appreciated all of that. The fact that they didn't have to spend a year bringing me up to speed on that. So we shook hands and we got started on the book record. That's how that one came about. Yeah. So were you able to sort of talk to any of the creative people on that side? Or I know some had passed away by that point or? Almost everybody was still alive when I started working on oh. the book. Um, all the, the original cast members. And I, we didn't talk to the creators because the feeling in the cast was that they had gotten all the credit. Um, oh, yeah. They had gotten all the credit. They wanted to tell their story their way. So I only spoke to the people who were in the original cast. That's the perspective of that book. Because again, they felt that other people had told their story too many times. Even Michael Bennett was still alive when I started writing that book. But they said, we just want, we want to tell our story our way. And so that was the concept and I stuck with it. So I did not speak to those other people, but most of them were still alive at that point. Yeah. But we, you know, we, uh, during the writing of the book, we lost Michael Bennett, we lost a number of other people. And, and I, I subsequently spoke to a lot of these people. Oh, I have a story that you might enjoy. Um, Chorus Line originated at the Newman Theater, uh, at the Public Theater uh, downtown in Greenwich Village. Um, 40 years to the day after Chorus Line opened, Hamilton was playing in that same space on that same stage. And a lot of the Hamilton people, they just revered the Chorus Line people. So what they did was on the 40th anniversary, they invited all the surviving original cast members to come down and Hamilton sang what I the cast came on stage with their their resume photos and they sang what I did for love to the original cast members who were sitting out in the house. And naturally, the original cast members said, well, Robert has to be part of this. So I, I was present when this thing happened and it was it was incredible. And then the chorus line people went up on the stage where they had created a chorus line 
and they they were all mixed in with the Hamilton people. It was it was such a great moment. I will always treasure being able to be present for that and be included. They really put their arm around me and pulled me into that original cast. So I I just feel oh USA Today. I don't have a photo I can reach for, but USA Today took a picture of us when the book came out. It was a whole original cast, and I was like laying down in their laps, and they were like all like petting me, and so. As a, your listeners who are fans of musical theater, imagine that you were there being petted by the original cast of A Chorus Line. Mm -hmm. I'll just let that sink in for a moment. So were there any interviews in doing this book or any one interview you felt was especially interesting or revealing in some way? Um, well, you know, there were there was there were a lot of different things that that I had to deal with. Uh, the questionnaires didn't always touch on everything. Some of them had a lot of gaps, and one of the people who did not want to participate at first was actually Donna McKechnie. Donna didn't want to participate at first, and um, she kind of she had done the questionnaire, but she kind of put me off as far as I had a lot of questions, especially about you know her relationship with Michael Bennett, whom she married and then divorced. Um, and, and she was very sensitive about going into some of those areas. And we were, we were actually, I had already handed in the manuscript and we were actually going to go to press without her in it. Oh. And then one night she called me up. She had just done Annie Get Your Gun in Florida. And she just came off the stage and it, she just decided in that moment that she was going to participate. And she called me up and we were on the phone from about, 12.30 in the morning till the sun came up at like six or seven o'clock. Mm -hmm. And she just poured out her whole story. Um, and it was, it was really, it was, it was very touching. And she, you know, she is a, a, a very special person. I mean, they're all, they're all special. Um, but she's very, a very emotional person. And, and uh, it was fascinating to talk to her. And I felt very honored that she was able to open up to me that way and just in time. I think she did it partly, she did it partly for herself. She did a little bit for me, but I think she mainly did it because she wanted to help the other cast members. That's just my theory, but that's why it finally broke through because I think she knew that without her participation that it would not be the same book yeah. about their stories without her being included. Also, you know, there was a little bit of sensitivity there because the show is supposed to be, everybody's supposed to be equal. But, you know, like Animal House, there were some that were more equal than others. I mean, she won the Tony Award for Best Leading Actress in a Musical. Mm. It was a musical that wasn't supposed to have a leading actress, but she was perceived as a leading actress. So there were, I think there was a little bit of stress in there. But in the end, just like in the show, when she decides, you know, I want to be a member of the chorus, that that is... That's a great thing to be. It's not a shame to be a member of the course. I want to be part of this group. And I think in the end, in real life, Donna did that to, to be in the book. I think she decided, I want to be part of this chorus line. Yeah. I don't want to be omitted from it. And, uh, and so that was a very, that was a very emotional, I think, part of putting that book together. Yeah. So I want to ask when you're writing a book like this or like about the Fantastics, um, would you try to, if someone told you something that was sort of gossipy or like a bad thing about someone else or something else, would you use it or would your goal to be like preserving a more positive? I always try to um, 
have it be complete and accurate. Good news and bad news. Same thing as we did with with uh, Playbill. That's why we didn't just yeah. publish press releases. I wanted to. I always want to tell the story the way it really happened. A lot of times, like with the chorus line, with the uh, chorus line book too, but the Fantastics book. A lot of these people, you know, they were old timers. They told these stories a million times, and they this over the years, the stories would kind of become um, make them make them look a little bit better. And maybe something a little controversial, they would they would admit that, or they would soft pedal it. Um, and so these, and they would sometimes they would enhance the stories to make them better stories to tell to people. Yeah. And so a lot of times I would get these stories encrusted like barnacles with um, all these added things. And so part of my job was to kind of scrape those barnacles off and find out what what really happened. Was it really as romantic as that? Was it really as horrible as that? Uh, and one thing that I learned to embrace was ambiguity. I mean, sometimes three people would tell the exact same story in three completely different ways. So like in the chorus line book, I've just included all three stories and like you decide which one you think is right because this is what this person said and they were there. This is what that person said. They were also there. Uh, and so I, I would try, when I ran into a situation where there were a number of different narratives. I just included all, all the narratives and, and let the reader decide. Um, uh, because again, it's, you know, it's sometimes it's hard to, to get to what exactly happened. Different people, I mean, if, you, if you're in a, I used to be a, a court reporter, you'd have witnesses, eyewitnesses would get on the stand and would say opposite things. And they had both seen the same thing. Uh, and, and I realized that, Rather than, you know, I did my best to find out objectively what was what actually happened. But where there was ambiguity that I could not resolve, I just put all the different versions in and let the reader decide. Yeah. And I do want to ask, would you try to do sort of additional research in terms of background or things that had been written or would it be purely the interviews that you did? No, massive background, massive background. I have a gigantic collection of, of uh, books and I went to the library at Lincoln Center and spent many, many, many hours there um, looking at uh, oral histories, trying to look up um, dates and times. And if people said something happened on a particular date, I just I just double checked in there, even to the point where somebody would say, oh, yes, I remember it was pouring rain that night. I would actually go back and try to find out what the weather was that day to find oh. out was that actually the day that it happened or are they just adding you know a little drama to the story by saying it was pouring rain when in point of fact it was a sunny day so uh, yeah I, I i did a lot of research just to double and triple check things that people would tell me again because i realize people embellish that's just human nature people tend to embellish and so i don't 100 percent rely on on quotes especially about stories about things that happened many many years ago because this Again, there's so many different versions of things that happen because people tend to embellish. I always, sometimes I would tell the embellished story too. And I'd say, this is, this is how they remember it, but this is how, uh, this is what the research shows happened that day. So I do want to ask you, I guess, the same question about the Fantastics book, which is how did that start? Was it your idea? Was it someone else's? Well, it was actually a similar situation. Um, uh, the person who wanted to write 
the book was a guy named Donald Farber. Don Farber was a, an attorney. He was the attorney for the show business attorney for the show. He worked for Lori Noto, the original producer. And um, for years, Don wanted to write a book about the, the creation of the Fantastics. And Don, um, he started writing it and he showed it to a publisher. He found a publisher, Donald I. Fine. And he said, this sounds like a legal brief. It doesn't sound like a book. It sounds like it sounds like a legal brief. You're a lawyer. Get a writer. So Don was looking around for a writer. I knew I was working at that time for a newspaper in Connecticut called uh, the uh, Stanford Advocate. And one of the other editors on the Stanford Advocate knew Don. And uh, right around that time, my chorus line book had come out and I was, you know, I was arts editor of the paper and theater critic. And I showed her the book and she said, my, I have a guy who wants to write a book on the Fantastics. And he also needs a writer, just like Tommy and Bayork did. He said, I'm, she said, I'm going to introduce you to. So I went to see Don. And uh, once again, Don and I hit it right off. And I told him my story about seeing the Fantastics when I was, uh, you know, 10 years old. And, um, and I told him I'd always been interested in it. I lived for a brief time in Greenwich Village. And I took a girlfriend I had at the time to see the Fantastics at Sullivan Street Playhouse. And we saw the show and I could see she was not, she was not digging it. I, of course, I saw it a zillion times. And once I started working on the book, I used to hang out in the theater and, you know, it used to be a speakeasy. So there's like secret passages and little spy holes and things. It's a, it was such a cool little theater. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm getting carried away here. Uh, so anyway, so we saw the show and Alice was like, uh, well, that was all right, but let's get going. So at the end of the show, we all applauded and, I just wanted to just hang out there for a minute. At the end of the show, the music director got up from the little piano behind the stage and a heavy set gentleman came and sat down behind the piano and started playing the exit music for the audience to go out. And, and I looked, I said, Alice, Alice, that's Harvey Schmidt. And she said, who's Harvey Schmidt? I said, that's the composer of the Fantastics is playing the exit music for the show. And she said, that's great. Let's exit. And I said, no, 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 no. So I sat there and Harvey looked over at me and I was sitting there and he just kept playing. Play. Basically, he played a, a, a selection of the entire score just for me and for Alice, who was like pulling my shirt to get me to leave. I'm not going to leave if Harvey Schmidt is playing the Fantastics right in front of me. Um, it was a wonderful experience. So when I started working on this book, I, I went to visit Tom and Harvey and uh, Tom Jones and Harvey Schmidt, the lyricist and composer. Um, and I told Harvey this story. He said, oh, that was you. He remembered that I had stayed to, to listen to it because that's what he would do. He'd go to, it was like his clubhouse. He'd go down and hang out and he'd play, sometimes he'd play the show. Um, and so we had, I had a wonderful time working on, on that book. Uh, I, I have a story, I have one story. Once it's some very similar to my chorus line story. Jerry Orbach was very resistant to being interviewed for the book. I didn't have a stack of papers. I had to do all the research myself. Yeah. So he used to live on 55th Street, somewhere just, just in Hell's Kitchen, just west of the theater district. And uh, matter of fact, the street he lived on is now called Jerry Orbach Way. If you look, it's on the street sign. That's the street where he used to live. Anyway, so he had a favorite restaurant in that area. And um, we went to it. And I was asking, asking him questions for the book. I mean, you had to have Jerry Orbach. He played El Gallo in the original cast. And he was like, uh, you know, he really didn't want to answer. 
So, um, I, I mean, I have a few little interview techniques after all these years. So I said, well, you know, you know, as much as I love the Fantastics, you know what show that I love even more than the Fantastics? Promises, Promises. I said, when I was in high school, I played, I played your part, Chuck Baxter in Promises, Promises. Well, Jerry Orbach lit up like a Christmas tree because he loved being in Promises, Promises. And he launched into this whole thing. At that time, Carol Channing was touring in Dolly and... Um, um, for many years, Yul Brenner had toured in uh, King and I, et cetera. And he was like, why isn't the promise? This is before he was on, on that, that uh, uh, police show that he was did so successfully on television. He was like, why aren't these shows a, 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 an annuity for me? Why aren't I touring in Promises, Promises all year long? He said, I don't get that. And um, he was way too old to play Chuck Baxter. But anyway, but once... Once we had established that, he opened up and he told me everything. He told me everything of that had happened on the show. And it was just a wonderful, wonderful interview about what it was like to be the original El Gallo on that show. And when they went into the space, somebody had left an old refrigerator full of food with the plug out. And he said that the whole place smelled of rotten food. And, and uh, I, I like to write about senses. I like to write about how things taste and feel and sound. Yeah. Um, and so that was just a wonderful detail for what it was like to be in, in a theater in Greenwich Village in 1960, that somebody would leave an old refrigerator in the middle of the stage. Um, uh, and I, I just had a wonderful time. I interviewed the, the, uh, cost, the, the set designer. Um, he had a budget of $1,400 to do all the costumes. He had done a production of a Shakespeare play. Um, what was the name of it? Not Pericles, one of the much lesser known uh, Shakespeare plays. And it was set on the sea. And so he had designed these ships with these big sails made out of China silk. And uh, after, the sh after the show closed, he kept the sails because he figured he could do something with them. And when he did the Fantastics, he had this incredibly low budget. And so he started cutting up these sails and so throughout the show, when you open up the box, there's, there's uh, cloth, there's the curtain is made out of China silk. The whole show was designed uh, around these pieces of China silk that he cut out of these sails from this production, the Shakespeare production. By the way, do you know the show at all? Yes. Do you know yes. the Fantastic? Uh, the, um, the mute, who am I talking to? Of course you know the show. The mute holds up a stick for the wall. He said, originally the stick had a piece of China silk hanging from it, and that was the wall. Oh. But he, all he did, he made a little sleeve to put the stick through. And at one of the performances, the mute lowered the stick and the thing slid off. So, and so instead of putting it back on, he just did the whole show just holding up the stick. And they realized that just holding up the stick for the wall was much better than having a piece of China silk. So they kept the stick in, but originally it was a mistake. Um, and so, it, it, you know, it, just, it was just a wonderful time. And again, almost everybody was still alive at that point. Today, there's only one member of the original cast that's still living, um, the girl, actress who played the girl. Um, all the rest of them have, uh, have moved on. Um, but it was great talking to them. It was, and some of them were hard to track down. The guy who played the, uh, the original mute was hard to track down, but I found him and he was actually, he was very helpful. Um, I loved working on that book. I loved hanging out at the Sullivan Street Playhouse. Um, the curtain was a big piece of China silk. By the way, you know the, um, 
the logo for the Fantastics is yeah. Harvey Schmidt's handwriting. It wasn't designed by a, uh, you know, a, by an ad company. When Harvey is a graphic designer, um, he's a wonderful graphic designer. And when they were trying to come up with a logo for the show, he, he got a couple of, uh, he had a font book and he rendered the Fantastics in a lot of different fonts and he had room at the bottom of the page. So he just, with his handwriting, he just wrote in the Fantastics. And when Laurie Noto, the producer looked at it and he goes, that's, that's our Hitler. He said, that's our, that's our logo. And so that's Harvey's handwriting. So uh, Harvey, when I was working on the book, Harvey said, come here, I want, I want you to help me with something. Behind the theater, is the Sullivan Street Playhouse had a little tiny backyard. And Harvey would take a fresh piece of China silk, which they then had to buy because they cut up all the sales. And he laid it out on the ground and he had a little paint pot and he, he opened it up, it was purple paint and he dipped a brush in it and he made a new curtain for the Fantastics right in front of me. Um, and they, they hung it, they let it dry and then that became the curtain for the Fantastics. That's how, that's how they did it. Yeah. Um, in those days in Greenwich Village in Off-Broadway in the early days of Off-Broadway. They had the composer paint the title of the show on a piece of chocolate. So um, I have many more stories. I'm not going to bore you with them, but uh, they're, like that guy said in my interview, it's all in the book. Get the book. Yeah. Um, um, so that's, I, I loved working on the Fantastics project. Yeah. So I do want to ask you, because you brought it up briefly, um, how would you sort of track everyone down? Would it be like cast members would say, I keep in touch with so-and-so, or how did you? Well, fortunately, a lot of the, here's what happened. The Fantastics was so, this is another one thing that'll be interesting to you. It was so cheap to do that show. The whole show, show capitalized at $14,000, which is more than some shows now spend on shoes. Uh, but the whole show was capitalized for that. And they had trouble raising $14,000 too. Um, you could buy 1% of the show for less than, like you could buy 1% of the show for a couple of hundred dollars and they still couldn't get people to buy it. So they started at one point, you could buy one eighth of a percent of the show for $50. And a lot of the cast members in the show who wanted the show to get on, bought like one eighth, one eighth of 1% of the show. And so Don had to send them their checks every month. There a lot of people made a lot of money off of the show from that little tiny investment. Um, and so he had all their addresses. So it was, most of them were easy to track down because most of them, Don had to send checks to them. Uh, but some of them did not buy a piece of the show. And those are the ones that were a little tougher to track down. And I had a lot of phone calls and, you know, calling friend of a friend of a friend to get to, to get to some of these people. And unfortunately I found like the, the two fathers, the original fathers had passed away when I started working on the, the book, but I was able to talk to some other people, but even the original music director, I was able to talk to, I would, you know, the original harpist on the show. Um, and uh, the music director had some very interesting, when they made the cast album, they decided they didn't just want to do piano and harp. They wanted to sweeten it up a little bit. So they actually got two pianos and they hired a couple of other instruments. But because the whole show was kind of thrown together, like they hired a cellist and the cellist was there and they told the cellist, instead of giving the cellist a chart, they said, uh, just uh, ad lib, ad lib your way through it. Uh, and the cellist, if you listen to the original cast and you listen to try to remember 
you can hear the cellist playing in the background. But he didn't have a lot to play because he was he he'd never heard the music. He was just ad-libbing his way through it. So you can hear a little cello. And after the first, they recorded that number first. They said, oh, yeah, maybe maybe we don't need a cellist. And so they kicked the cellist out. So you can hear a cello just on the first number, just on Try to Remember. Um, it's subtle, but it's there. You have to listen closely. And I listened really closely to this recording. Um, but you can hear two pianos. You can hear a, a little bit of a drum because there's no drum in, in, the, in the show. They kept, there's drum effects throughout the thing. But again, they're all ad-libbed in that cast album. So I want to ask you next about something that I'm sure everyone who's listening will be curious about, which is your involvement with the Tonys. So you've you've been on the nominating committee for a few years yes. in a row. I, I was, uh, you, you when you get on the Tony nominating committee, by the way, it's not something that you can ask for. Oh. It's like the finger of God just comes down one day and points at you and you get a letter saying, would you like to serve on the Tony nominating committee? So I served for three years, 2012, 13, and 14. The terms are three years. Um, and usually a very few people serve more than one term. Usually it is just, you get one term, you're in, you're out, and that's it. And then the finger of God moves on. I think they asked me to be on the committee because I did that book on collaboration. Oh. Because I knew what all the different people who work on a show, what it is that they do. Yeah. I could, like, I had a whole section on sound design. If you remember, they discontinued the Tony for sound design for a while because they felt that nobody knew enough about sound design to be able to render a judgment as to what the best one is. A lot of times the sound designer, sound design Tony goes to the person who does like the most, you know, most fantastic effects or echoes and things like that, that really pull your attention. But really good sound design, you don't notice. Really good sound design, you're sitting in the last row in the balcony and you can hear every word clearly. That's good sound design. Mm -hmm. where, you, where the orchestra doesn't play so loud that it drowns out the singer. Where even what they call the pianissimo moments, the soft moments, the audience can hear them just as well as the loud moments without having to wear uh, headsets. Don't forget those theaters were designed. Those theaters aren't just buildings. Those theaters are musical instruments. Think about it. The theater is, it's like the bell of a horn. The people on the stage are like they're blowing into the mouthpiece and they are designed. They were, des most of those theaters were designed before they had amplification. They're designed to spread the sound out to the back of the house. Um, people like Ethel Merman knew this and you know what they did? They sang loud. <laughs> a lot of the actors are trained to to act into a microphone they're not used to projecting which is a, a technique a vocal technique to make your voice go farther so they have to um amplify so uh, I'm, i could do a whole seminar on sound design i think the reason they put me on the tony committee is that i knew this that i could actually render a, a, an informed judgment on um who the best sound designer was or who the best lighting designer was or who the best orchestrator was most people don't, they don't listen for the orchestrations, but I actually have a story about it in the next issue of uh, Encore Monthly, um, oh. how orchestrators tell the story by their choice of instruments. Um, if you listen to, if you listen to Sunday in the Park with George, Michael Starobin is the orchestrator. Um, in the song, Color and Light, 
George is uh, standing there and he's singing, singing. He said, more red, more beer. And then, and the last thing he says is more light. And on the word light, Starabin has created a mixture of triangle and violins and, well, you, you listen to it. He tried to create the sound of light. That is genius orchestration. And so I hear these things and I think that's why they put me on the Tony nominating committee because I hear these things. And uh, it was great being on there. Um, it was uh, Kinky Boots was our best musical one year and Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder. You know, I tell people, um, you know, every year when the Tony nominations come out, people say, who are the idiots who came up with these nominations? And I always say to them, I'm one of those idiots. I have to say, sometimes I was a little surprised by the uh, by the nominations that we came out with. They weren't necessarily always the nominations that I would have done. But let me, oh, let me, two things, if I may. May I continue oh. to elaborate on your question? One thing that makes me nuts is this whole notion of the nominators snubbed this one or they snubbed that one. I can tell you from having been in that room where the nominations were being made, there's no snubbing that goes on. You have four slots that you have to fill. And sometimes somebody is really good, but they're, they're number five. And it's not that they're being snubbed. It's just that in our estimation that there were four people better. There were four artists who did a better job. They're not saying that number five didn't do a good job. They're not saying, oh, we hate them. Let's punish them. There's none of that. I can tell you from having been in that room, what first thing we did is to vote on whether we would have conversation about the nominations before we cast our nominations. And all three years that I was on that board, they voted no. We didn't want to have a debate because we all know who we wanted to vote for. Uh, we didn't need to have an argument. We didn't even have a discussion. Nobody's opinion was going to be changed. We wanted just our pure opinions. And so nobody got snubbed. So that makes me nuts when I hear that. Um, and I don't remember what the other thing was, that there was another thing regarding that. Oh, uh, the idea that there are people who campaign for certain actors and actresses. And, and, uh, and, and you know, and they also always asked us, would you like, who, is there any Tony Awards you'd like to add? And uh, I always thought that music director uh, which is uh, under, you know, undercounted, but music directors are a very important part of the whole thing. I always thought there should be a Tony for uh, music director, but, uh, you know, I understand why there's not, because most people don't know what that is. Um, I always thought there should be a Tony for uh, best um, song. Matter of fact, for years at Playbill, I, I used to do a feature called Tony Awards They Should Have Given, where I put my, at my uh, nominees for these categories, including... And I always thought, why not give a best song? Here's another question. Why th is there sexual dimorphism in the acting category and in no other category? Why do you give best actor and best actress and not director and directress or set designer and set designeress? Um, of course, we, you know, we're phasing out some of these uh, gender-based um, pronouns. So maybe that's but then so why not just have best actor and give it to the best actor and male or female actor? Uh, for some reason, for some reason, only the acting category is their sexual dimorphism. I, uh, why? I don't know. 
Um, but that's the way we've always done it. Most people don't even think twice about it. So there you have it. I've given you my rant about awards, having actually been somebody who was, was instrumental in awards for a couple of years. So I do want to ask you a little more about what it's like. Ask away, my friend. In, in terms of, um, is there a ballot and are you all always meeting together or do you fill it out separately or how do you, how does that work? What they do is they send out a list of everybody who is eligible in every category. Now, some of the things like orchestrator, that's all on one page. Best featured actor, it's basically every single person in every show. Yeah. And so the pages of, of um, best featured actor, they're just pages and pages and pages of featured actor. Um, and they send those out in advance so that you can look over who is um, eligible in each category. And they have a little space where you can kind of mark who you would like to vote for. And so you can just to speed up the process so you don't aren't presented with it the minute you walk in. One thing that I always did when I was on the committee you, by the way, you have to see every show. If you do not see every show, and they keep track of it, they have a, a, a uh, they mark off that you've seen every show. The press agent has to get, has to report back to them that you have seen every show. If you miss a show, you cannot um, vote in the any of the categories involved in that show. So if you miss a big musical, you can't vote in any musical categories. Mm -hmm. And in point of fact, if you have a conflict, like a lot of people on the committee work on the shows work on shows. If you've worked on a show, you're off the committee. If you miss shows, if you miss a certain number of shows, a key number, you're off. They used to have a very small number of people that they put on the committee. The problem is there was one year where I think they went down to like 12 nominators. It was a very low number. So now the, each year they announce the committee is usually like 50 people and they know that people are going to have to drop off. People get sick. If you get sick and the show opens and closes, you're off the committee. Not the, not your fault, but it's not their fault either. They want to be able to get a, a legitimate idea of who's on every show. So anyway, I made it through all the way through all three of my years. I saw every show. <clears throat> I was never had to recuse myself in any category. I was never kicked off. So anyway, so I what I did was all season long when I would go to see the show, I kept a special notebook where I would mark off on each show. Um, who I thought was Tony worthy in that show or what performance or what part of that show was Tony worthy. So, so much for people who say that, oh, by time, the show that opened last summer, no, they're not gonna get any Tony votes because the nominators aren't gonna even remember what they did. I and many other people, we kept track of that. So when it came time for me to start to nominate, I had all my notes as to who I thought was the best, even in shows that opened the previous June. Yeah. Uh, I had my list and I, so I always remembered who was, who was good and who, and who I thought was worthy of a, a Tony nomination. And then, so then you go into a room and you're all sitting around a table and they pass you the official ballot. I don't know what they do now, but as of 2014, we would get a sheet with all the, and once again, it was this, basically the same thing they had sent us in advance, except this was the official one. We got a magic marker, yellow or pink, because you can see through them and a uh, ruler and you had to put the ruler down and you had to put with the magic marker, you had to magic mark the person you wanted to nominate. You had to color them in and you had to go through and it was a silent process. We voted not to have any debate. 
you'd mark that off and then you'd hand them in. And they had a, um, in the next room, they had um, accountants whose job it was to tabulate. And what would happen is you would send them in and then you'd wait. And then they'd come back and they said, okay, you can, we're ready to do the next one. Or they would come in and say, we had only have four slots in this, in this, um, uh, in this category, but we have uh, some ties. So we have six people who have gotten enough votes to be in this category. You're going to have to keep re-voting until we have four in the category. And so sometimes we'd have to cast the same ballot four or five or six times until somebody changed their mind. Um, that didn't happen a lot, but it happened enough. It happened every year, at least one or two categories every year that I was on the committee. And then they would move on and then we'd break for dinner. Um, um, one year, the dinner was not that great. Two years, the dinners were great. They were sensational. We could have just sat there and, and, and eaten like pigs. It was so good. Uh, it was too good. It was too good because we were, and then we were to, uh, talking about why we felt dead at Broadway. But then we would get back, no alcohol, uh, soft drinks only. Uh, and then we'd, and usually we'd get together late in the afternoon and we would go through till about midnight. One year we went later than midnight. Um, because as I said, sometimes we had to re-vote and re-vote and re-vote. And there was no debate. There was no campaigning. Nobody could get up and say, you know, this actor has been nominated 17 times and we owe them. None of that. It was just silently ruler, magic marker, hand in, wait, next category or re-vote. Um, I never changed my vote. I was very bad, very bad about that. I felt very strongly about the people I voted for. Yeah. Um, so that's how, that's how it would go. And then they, you know, they would release us at, you know, midnight or one o'clock in the morning and we'd all stagger home and then wait to hear who, who, the, who actually got nominated because they wouldn't tell us who got nominated oh. because it, they didn't want us to know and didn't want us to like sneak the information out to Michael Riedel or whoever the, you know, the columnist was. And, you know, I had, a, I had a connection with playbill.com. We would have loved to have broken that story. We found out who the nominees were at the same time that the, the public found out who the nominees were. And sometimes we'd be like, really? We voted for that? I thought this person should have been nominated. But again, they didn't tell us. And that was the, I wish all the awards were as politics free and as carefully monitored as the Tony Awards are. I have to say the three years I was on was a very professional environment, very pure. And, the um, only thing, and, and um, they, Charlotte St. Martin, the head of the Broadway League, would come in and she would say, vote for your conscience. Vote who you think did the best job. She didn't come in and say, you know, we really need uh, this show, this little show. Uh, the big show is going to do great on tour. They don't need the help. This little show needs the help. So please give them a little help. That never happened. Yeah. She just came, she would always come in and say, vote for who you think did the best job. It was a short speech and out she'd go. And your other involvement with the Tonys was making the Tonys playbill for a few years in a row? Yes, so. I did the Tony playbill for, for 10 years. I was the editor of the Tony. I also used to host the Tony broadcast on America Online, which was an online service that was in existence about 3000 years ago. But it was the first time they that the there was anything about the Tonys on the internet 
that was live as the as the show was going on. And um, I remember Lawrence Fishburne. I was I we used to broadcast from uh, Sardis, and I remember I was interviewing Carol Channing. You know, crazy Carol Channing, who's actually incredible. She plays this kind of ditzy character, but she's actually brilliant. And I was interviewing her in Sardis, and Lawrence Fishburne comes over, and he's like, oh, Miss, uh, Miss Channing, you know, you've always been an inspiration to me. And I'm thinking, Carol Channing inspired Lawrence Fishburne? I mean, it's hard to imagine two actors more different. But it was interesting to see that, that he knew who she was, and he revered her. And it was a very touching moment that I still remember. And I was so glad that I was able to capture that. Um, but uh, I guess I, I did the Tony playbill all those years. One thing that I found was really interesting, especially for um, nominees from Europe, it was really hard to get photos of them. You know, somebody would be, and they said, well, and sometimes I would get like an actual snapshot, like an actual paper snapshot. They would mail it to me and it looked like it was taken in their kitchen. And I'm and like, you do realize this is for the Tony Awards playbill, right? You've been nominated for a national award and you just sent me a picture of yourself wearing shorts and flip-flops. I said, do you have like a formal headshot? A lot of people, especially the designers, they don't have, well, they didn't in those days. Now they've gotten a lot smarter. But during that time, it was the transition from hard copy photographs to digital photographs. And I kind of brought them through that period. So I wanted to ask next about your um, book called UC Metro, which was about the musical Metro. Uh-huh. Um, you probably are curious about this because it is listed as having been published, but the book was never published. Don Farber, who I'd done the Fantastics book, he loved the job that I did, thank God. And he was going to be executive producer uh, with a guy named Victor Kubiak. Victor Kubiak had created a musical in Poland, in Warsaw, which they call Warszawa. Um, he, was, he loved musicals and he decided to put on a musical in Polish in Poland, which and, and Poland had just recently come out of communist uh, you know, oppression and they had very little uh, um, cultural influence from the West. They had seen Chorus Line, the movie, they had seen uh, Hair, and they had seen Porgy and Bess. And those are the only three American musicals that, that were widely seen. So this show that they did called Metro bore a very strange resemblance to Porgy and Bess, Chorus Line, and Hair, if you can possibly imagine such a thing. It was a huge hit in Warsaw. And they flew, I flew to Warsaw six times. I spent weeks with the original cast because it was Victor's dream to bring this Polish musical to Broadway. And I thought this would be a sensational book. I didn't know if it was going to be a hit or a flop. I just, but Victor made a lot of mistakes along the way, a lot. Just before the show opened, he did an interview with the New York Times saying, Broadway doesn't know how to do musicals anymore. We in Warsaw know how to do musicals and we will show Broadway how to do musicals. They made a lot of mistakes with the show. They, um, they had to, you know, they brought over the original um, Warsaw cast, none of whom spoke English. They had to learn the, all, they had to translate it into English. They had to learn the lyrics phonetically 
Uh, can you imagine if you had to sing an entire score in Polish phonetically, not knowing what you were saying? Uh, but they, equity required that they hire uh, American actors for the leads. And so they did, but then they ran into trouble and they, the director of the show took over the leading role during previews. And part of the problem was once they got to New York, they started seeing shows, which at that time was Miss Saigon and Will Rogers Follies and things like that. And it come back from these shows saying, our show has to be more like Will Rogers Follies. Like, oh, our show has to be more like Miss Saigon. And so the writers were like hysterically trying to rewrite the show, which already resembled Chorus Line and Hair and Porgy and Bess a little too much. Um, needless to say, opening night was a complete catastrophe. Uh, matter of fact, the New York Times review, the lead on it was, what is the Polish word for fiasco? Um, and so that even though we had scheduled the publication of the book, even though we had actually part of the reason that you probably are aware of it is because it was assigned an ISDN number, which is like, it's, it's like the social security number for books. It had been assigned one. And so it's listed as having been published, even though in the end, the publisher uh, decided to kill the book and I got paid a kill fee. I would have much rather having the book. And it would have been a fascinating book about misunderstanding between East and West. Uh, I think the fact that it was a flop See, the thing is, the, the publisher had expected us to sell the book at the theater because the show was going to run for 10 years, which is what Victor told them. Um, but once the show closed, uh, the publisher said, we're not going to publish this book, even though we already have an ISDN number. Most of the book was written already. I still have the manuscript someplace. Um, but um, so that's the answer to your question. That book is listed as having been published. But in point of fact, there's one copy and I've got it in my closet. And it's about it's about two thirds done. The, it was so many interesting things happened when those kids came over from Poland. They, they had to take a bus from Kennedy into Manhattan. Warsaw was, you know, it was, it was, it was like a small Midwestern city. They had never seen anything like New York. They were overwhelmed. We took them out to a grocery store. We took them like to like to a big American grocery store. Some of the kids were crying. They had never seen bounty like that. You go to the grocery store in Warsaw and you know, there's, there is one kind of cereal. There is one kind of flour there. And, and when they had it, most of the time the shelves were empty. They come into New York and there's 12 different kinds of Pop-Tarts. And they had, they had walking through the meat section, they, they were things we take for granted. The, it just, it blew them apart, these kids. They don't have a system for training musical theater performers in Warsaw. They used to go to discos and see who's the best dancer and they'd offer them a job in the show. One of the guys that worked on Metro, he literally, literally was a salt miner and he used to go and dance in discos on the weekend. He went from being a salt miner to being a star in Warsaw to opening on Broadway. I mean, that's that kid's story alone would be a movie of the week. Um, <clears throat> and this, my book was filled with these stories and it, it killed me when they didn't publish the book, but I understood. That's, that's, the, that's the publishing world. They, they couldn't sell it at the theater. They didn't think anybody would be interested. That's the answer. So some books that you wrote that I love, the ones I have are the Playbill yearbooks. Which, yes. So. Oh, I love doing those Playbill yearbooks so much. 
So how did the idea for this start to do these? I, ha I can't take credit for it. The publisher of Playbill, Philip Birch. I was sitting in my office one day and he stuck his head in. He said, we're going to do a yearbook. I want us to do a yearbook. And I want to have in the yearbook, uh, it's going to be all the contents. of the." He's always trying to think of ways to repurpose the stuff that was in the playbill. We'll put the contents of all the playbills in. And we're going to we'll put the pictures, not just of all the actors. We'll put the pictures of everybody who works on the show. Everybody. And I said, he said, can you do it? I said, yeah, sure, I'll do it. That was the thing. He would come up with a lot of these ideas, and I was the guy who would actually execute them and make them reality. So um, every year I would add a new thing. So in the Playbill yearbook, you'll notice that not only was it all the, all the actors, but I would send a photographer. You put all the ushers in. The orchestra. They got their pictures in a book. We thought everybody who had their picture in the book would buy a copy of the book. A lot of these people came back and said, we should get this book for free. And we're like, this book is a very reasonably priced book considering it has every playbill of every show and every person who works on every single show. And we had to take all the pictures ourselves. But we, 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 what are, we had all the people who ran the unions. This is, this is the theatrical wardrobe union. We had all the union officials in the book. We had every, literally every person that worked on Broadway was in the book. Here is local 802, American Federation of Musicians, local 802. We had all the executives of, the, of their union. We had everything in here. We had all the press agents that worked on Broadway. We had all the, all the people who did the ads for the shows. We had everybody in the, in the um, yearbook, everybody. But again, our economic model was built on everybody would want to buy a copy of it and everybody felt we should give them a free copy. And, and so after 10 years, unfortunately, we had to turn it off. Even though every year I would add something new. Like for instance, the last, in the last year, I added this wonderful map of the, of the theater district that includes not only all the theaters, but all the um, theater related things like where the union headquarters are and where like, um, uh, the bars that people hung out at, everybody's favorite restaurants, and everything connected with uh, the theater experience. Uh, Kessler Tiber, our graphic designer, designed that map. It killed, once again, it killed me that we had to stop publishing this book because I used to love putting this book. And uh, I would always sneak a picture of myself and my staff into the front of the book. Um, but anyway, the the, I love doing these yearbooks and they are really a slice of history yeah. because we, I would ask people uh, on every show that was in the book, in addition to everything else, I had uh, a correspondent and I would ask the correspondent what life was like on the show. And we would include things like, where was your opening night party? What, um, what are some of the celebrity visitors that came there? What were some of the cool like letters that people or emails that people would send to the, the cast? And I would ask them all these questions. You know, what did you do at holiday time? Did you have a special holiday celebration? Um, what was your, what did you do for um, uh, the Easter bonnet this year? Um, so all these things that, that are wonderful parts of being in a show that disappear after the show closes, captured in amber forever, and ghostly experiences. And so I have this incredible treasury of ghost stories, firsthand ghost stories 
Um, and again, I'm, I'm working on a book with that one, and I've been collecting them since then. Um, you know, we, we stopped publishing that in 2014, but the ghost, I'm now the ghost story guy. And so I keep getting ghost stories sent to me. So I got a, I got a dump truck load of ghost stories. So I want to ask you about a book that we mentioned briefly earlier, which was I'm the Greatest Star. So yes, how did you sort of narrow down this list? Because of course, <laughs> oh, so I created a mathematical formula. Originally, that was supposed to be, by the way, it was supposed to be the 50 greatest stars, but the book just got too thick. So I created a formula uh, on how I determined who goes in the book. And here's the formula. It's uh, X equals and then uh, D slash E plus W to the uh, U um, um, degree. And uh, where the value, where Y is a value of three or greater. What the heck does that mean? Well, I'll tell you. X is the degree of stardom. It's an, I'm created a numerical formula for determining startup. By the way, this gets a little insane. So um, just, just bear with me because everybody wanted to know. And so I had to come up with some, some wacky thing to explain how I chose people other than just, oh, I just picked the people I thought were the biggest stars. Nobody wants to hear that. So it's like, okay, so here's my formula. Uh, D is the difficulty of the roles that they attempted. E is the seeming ease with which they accomplish them. W equals the overall quality of their work. So it's a little subjective there. U is the uniqueness with which they perform, the strength of their original, of their individual personalities. And Y is the number of starring roles they had. This was key because you had to have done at least three starring roles on Broadway. And that is why Barbara Streisand is not in the book. Even though the book is called I'm the Greatest Star, she's not in the book because she did not have three starring roles on Broadway. She could have, and she should have, but she did not. <clears throat> so I used that little formula, and actually that was that was kind of helpful to come up with the people that I chose to be in the book. But you know, I'll, I'll tell you why I, I did it. I'll tell you why. One of the qualities of being a stage star is that your performance is, um, it disappears when you stop. and a lot of people nowadays, they move back and forth to movies and television and things like that. But we all know, you know, Patti LuPone is not a giant star on TV or in the movies. Yeah. On Broadway, she's a tremendous star. Her, there's a quality that she has that comes across on stage that does not come across in other media. Ethel Merman had this problem as well. In the early days of Broadway stardom, Broadway was the number one place you wanted to work. Now it's television or the movies. But a lot of these Broadway stars, they were such big stars that they didn't have to do movies or television because they were stars of the stage. And as a result, a lot of them, we have no record of them. You can't look up clips of them on the internet or a couple of little clips that, that don't really capture their amazing quality. So the early chapters in here, I didn't want these people to be forgotten. People like Burt Williams, Burt Williams was a huge star in his day. He was really one of the first recognizable Broadway stars, and he was African-American. Um, sadly, part of his story is he had to appear in blackface, even though he was black, because that's what people required in those days. Horrible. And yet, he was a huge star. But people like, some people we still remember, like George M. Cohan. Yeah. Because there's a statue of him in Times Square. And, you know, give my regards to... He's remembered. 
Fanny Bryce is remembered. Why is Fanny Bryce remembered? Because of her baby Snooks? No, because they did Funny Girl. People really, what people remember is Streisand. They don't necessarily remember Fanny. They remember Streisand as Fanny. But some of these stars who were huge stars at that time, like Marilyn Miller. Oh, yes. Her big number was Look for the Silver Lining. Um, she was a huge star. She appeared in show after show after show. Uh, if her name above the title would sell tickets like crazy. She didn't have to, she made a couple of movies. She did movie versions of some of her shows. She's completely forgotten today, which is too bad. Because Here's one that is particularly poignant. Fred and Adele Astaire. Fred and Adele Astaire were stage stars. And really she was the star. Adele was considered the star. Fred was kind of considered the guy who lifts Adele up in the air when they dance. He was her partner, but he was not the big star. She was. She retired. Once she retired, also, it was hard to do romance musicals with the two of them because they couldn't be yeah. in a romance together because they were brother and sister. Um, after his sister retired, Fred was not in demand in New York because she was the star. That's why he went out to Hollywood and became Fred Astaire. But Adele was really this, the star of that. So my chapter is about her. I can go on and on. Um, uh, and I'll try not to, but somebody like William, Bobby Clark, William Gaxton. You have to remember, William Gaxton was somebody, Cole Porter wrote musicals for him. George Gershwin wrote musicals for him. Everybody wrote musicals for him. He was such a reliable star. He was the star of, um, uh, of The I Sing. He played Wintergreen, Wintergreen for president. Um, Gaxton was a huge star never had to make movies because he was always in demand on the stage. As a result, today, forgotten. As the book goes on, of course, there's, I have Audra McDonald and, and Nathan Lane and Cheetah Rivera and, you know, um, you know so many, and um, Tommy Toon and, you know, Angela Lansbury. These are all these gigantic stars. I don't know, would anybody argue with me that these were some of the greatest stars in Broadway history? I don't think anybody would. Um, Jerry Orbach, I have in here, Julie Andrews, Cheetah Rivera, Robert Preston, Gwen Verdon, John Raitt, Zero Mostel, Yul Brynner. I mean, who's going to argue with me on these? Do you want to argue with me? I'll fight you. I'll fight you right now. Uh, these are the greatest stars, and I feel very, very calm about putting them in the book. Uh, but again, part of the reason I wrote the book is so that people would not think of Angela Lansbury purely as... Uh, an, you know, um, uh, what, was her, what was her mystery show? Oh, then she wrote. Hmm? Murder, She Wrote. Murder, She Wrote. Thank you. See, I remember the Broadway titles much, much better than the TV title. I don't want people to forget that she was in um, Mame and Sweeney Todd. And I mean, these great, great performances that she gave on stage. That's what that book is for. It's to remember these people as stage stars. Yeah. Do I seem obsessed with this? I think I'm maybe a little obsessed with this. No. <laughs> Who am I talking to? <clears throat> Who am I talking to? Um, but now, so you think to yourself, now all of this background, what does this go into? It's all now going into Encore Monthly, my wonderful theater magazine where I can, I can have, you know, wonderful stories about theater every single month and celebrate the theater in the 2020s and to look forward to the theater of the 2030s and the 2040s, where you and your, your friends and 
the people your age are going to be running the show and being the stars and writing the magazines and things like that. This is my period where I'm carrying the torch before I hand it off to all of you. And uh, I, and I'm, you know, and this time when everything is locked down, you can't see shows, you can't get playbills, you can't do this, you can't do that. The one place you can get, you can, what they call drinking from the fire hose, as far as theater is concerned, is my new magazine. And uh, so that's how I stay out of trouble. Well, you know, I keep moving forward. Who knows where the magazine will take me? Who knows what's going to be next? Who knows when, you know, that at some point we may be able to just call up performances in our heads just the way we call them up on our, on our you know, desktop and our laptops now and our iPads and our cell phones and, you know, all the places where I feel like I've done my part to put theater. Um, you know, it, this is this is going to be this is going to be part of the legacy of all that. Thank you you. so much for joining me. It's been so wonderful to talk to you. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode and remember to come back next time when I'm joined by leading lady Karen Ziemba. After replacing as Peggy Sawyer in 42nd Street, she too became a star and created roles in the legendary shows Contact, Steel Pier, Never Gonna Dance, Curtains, and The World Goes Round, Bullets Over Broadway, and more. You may also remember her performances in Nonsense, Teddy and Alice, Prince of Broadway, Chicago, Crazy for You, A Chorus Line, Kid Victory, and I Do, I Do. I hope you'll enjoy that episode, and thanks again for listening.